Welcome to The Frontline, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of sales leadership. Whether you're a sales leader yourself or someone who wants to learn more about building an elite sales team, we bring you the insights and strategies from today's top sales leaders living, working, and leading from the front line. Hey, welcome to The Frontline. I'm your host, Sean Buxton, Head of Sales Leadership at The Sales Collective. Excited today to have as our guest, Mike Weinberg, author of three, count them three, Amazon number one bestsellers, including, let me see if I got them here. I do, New Sales Simplified, uh, which has been named a top five sales book of all time. Sales Management Simplified, which is the most reviewed and best-selling sales management book of the past decade. And most recently, The First Time Manager Sales. So here to share his sales leadership knowledge today on the front line. Welcome, Mike. Oh my gosh, Sean. Thanks for having me. What a treat. Yeah. So my first question for you, Mike, is why are you so lazy and when are you going to write a book? I Let me tell you something. It took a little <laughs> arm twisting from the publisher to write the last one. I, I did not jump up and down when they called me and asked me to write that book. I'll tell you that. So, oh man. How labor intensive is that to write a book? You know, as we were talking about a couple hundred pages, right? Yeah, this is my shortest one. Um, but I was, I was more careful writing this cause I don't want it to be a repeat of sales management simplified. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I've seen a lot in the eight years since I wrote the, the last book. So I felt like I had new stories to bring in more confidence in what I was saying actually is the right formula. Cause I've seen so many things around the world about what works and what doesn't work in sales leadership that I was able to write it kind of shorter and crisper. Okay. But you know, in terms of how much work, it depends. Everyone's a little different in their writing. I am not the most disciplined person and I had a crazy amount of business last year. So I had a record year travel and revenue wise at the same time I had a book to write and that's a hard combo. Um, the only benefit was I was involved in so many real companies doing, you know, sales leadership coaching or leading workshops that I had lots to talk about because it was fresh in my face every day. Yeah. But it was, it, it, it took most of the year, you know, with a sprint at the end of the last couple of months trying to get it all done. So I'm really thankful. I, you know, and I, I said this earlier, I, I didn't want to write it. Like they came to me and said, Hey, we're going to do books around this. There's a classic book called the first time manager. It sold hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies and the publisher owns it. They said, we're going to do a series. We think you should do the one for the first time manager sales. Oh, cool. And I was like, I'm honored. That's really nice. And they could tell I was not like all jazzed about it. <laughs> it was just because of work. I just wasn't ready to write another book. And yeah, they, in the nicest, kindest way said to me, you know, we're going to do this book and we think you should do it. And they were basically saying, if you say no, uh, you know, there, there are authors behind you that would be happy. And I'm like, you know what? Thank you for the direction. And because I'm, I changed my practice. I mean, I'm a sales nerd. I'm a sales hunter by trade. New sales simplified is what put me on the map. But the truth is if we don't get, and we meaning companies and executives, the big sales management stuff, right? Culture, mm. accountability, compensation, coaching, team meetings, right people in the roles, addressing underperformance, the, the main jobs of sales management. If we don't get that stuff right, all the training in the world, all the enablement, all the tools, I mean, in the world that you're a specialist, it doesn't move the needle if the no. managers don't adopt, don't coach, don't hold accountable. So in that exactly. sense, I like I, the more we could equip and resource managers, because I think they have the hardest job in the world the better we're going to be. And that's why I said, all right, I'll do it. So good for you. Good for you. Yeah. I haven't been able to like 
hold myself accountable enough to, to, to put one out yet, but that's a, a dream I have one day. Someday I'll, I'll have enough discipline for that, but I would uh, tell you, to do to you. It. I, I would tell you to do it. And if a publisher says, no, you do it anyway. I have friends that have done incredible jobs with self published books that are hugely popular. So I, I will tell you it's people, it's worth it. It's worth the work you put into it. So that's my in, encouragement for you. Well, thanks. I'll take that. I'll take it. Uh, so, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned the role of the sales manager and how important it is that frontline sales manager. And that's our audience here. We're reaching out to people on the front lines of sales leadership and management every day. Why do you think that there's so many managers that have been promoted from the individual contributor role to that sales manager role for the first time? And they're given zero I think it's 76, 80% is the statistic of them have zero sales manager specific training or preparation for the role. Now they might have the generic HR manager stuff, which is, Oh, make sure you listen to your people. And that's all good. Right. But we all know our audience is unique. Running the sales team is different than running any other team in the company. Why is that gap there? It's amazing to me. It still exists. Yeah. It's a, it's a very big question and it's a very frustrating question. Because it, we could probably make the case together, Sean, that that frontline sales leader has the single most important job in the sales organization because they're leading the team for which everyone's livelihood is dependent on that team's having success in sales. You got it. And the fact that there's so little resourcing and equipping and helping. So that that's part of the challenge. I think the sad other part of the challenge is that senior leaders, and I mean in the corner offices, for the most part, I feel like they have lost sight of what that mm. person's job is. And because of technology and then because of COVID and because of tools, we end up burying that leader with so much garbage and so much crap and so much admin and so many reports and spreadsheets from the CFO and messages, look at my phone, messages on Slack and, and Teams and pinging them all day long that they, they're distracted in every imaginable way. They're so busy. No mm. one has stepped back to say, hey, how should these people be spending their time? And if the highest payoff activities are doing accountability well and coaching people well, which I could make the case, those are the two levers we can push and pull to drive better sales results. Why don't we help our people understand that A, that's the big part of their job and B, help them do a better job doing those things. And I don't see that investment being made and it's incredibly frustrating. Yeah, I agree. Do you think that there's some component of it where the senior leaders are like, Hey, I didn't have that. I was just, there's almost a pride in saying I was thrown to the wolves. You know, I had to sink or swim. And so it's almost like, not that I'm, that I want to do something, you know, bad to someone else, but it's almost like, Hey, it worked for me. Look at me. I'm a CRO. Like it'll be cool for Mike. It'll be fine for Sean. He'll figure it out. She'll figure it out. Yeah. I don't know. I, I feel like things have changed so quickly in the last decade where this, I call it like a devolution, like the, the sales manager's job has devolved into desk and CRM jockey mm -hmm. and people have, it just kind of happened to them. So I, I don't, I don't think they're, they're not training them because they want to make their life harder. I think they don't, they're, they're absolutely unaware of what their day-to-day -day job looks like and how little time the frontline sales leaders spend on the precious few high payoff tasks that move the needle on culture and move the needle on results. And I, so I think some of it is an ignorance. And I'll add one more thought. And it really goes back to your original question. I think that there is this general ignorance, and I mean of it, within salespeople who want to be in management, and then of managers or senior leaders that are putting people in management, 
that because you were good at sales, you will be good as a leader. You will be good in management. Yeah. And I mean, I, I just recorded my own episode based on chapter two in the book. And the, the title of that chapter is um, your new job in management is nothing like your old job in yeah. sales. And I joke, the only thing similar is the word sales, but the roles are complete opposites. You go from winning on your own to having to win through other people. You yeah. go from being selfish to being selfless. You go from being responsible for one to being responsible for many. That's a radical shift. I struggled really badly as a new leader and a new manager because I was a great sales hunter and I was good at being selfish. I was good at controlling my time. I, I was able to get stuff done on my own. That doesn't work even having a healthy ego, right? You, a good ego for a salesperson, even if it's a bit oversized, I think that's actually an advantage. Little extra self-esteem, you know, you mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of Teflon, you want the recognition. That's all great in an individual contributor role. That gets old really fast when the manager wants the limelight, wants the attention, wants all the praise and recognition. That don't work. So all of that has to do with the shift. And it's a massive shift from IC, individual contributor, producer, into management. And nobody wants to talk about that either. So all of those reasons, I think, are why they're having such a hard time. Yeah. So what's the solution? What If I'm promoted to a frontline sales manager for the first time, I recognize this in myself, that, hey, I need help. Uh, I was a great individual contributor, but now I got to lead this team and I don't really know what I'm doing, but uh, I don't want to tell my boss that, right? Because they promoted me because they thought I would know what I'm doing. What can I do? You know, there's this relatively short new oh. book with a really attractive <laughs> cover that you may have in front of you also that is probably the best $18 someone in that situation is ever going to spend. I mean, and I, I say that, you know, tongue in cheek, but, um, the reason this is my shortest book and I even, and I had to say this out loud when we launched the book and it was the first time I ever said it, it's my best book. The reason it's shorter is because I was able to eliminate all the fluff and get yeah. it down to the bare bones. This is what you need. These are the essentials to win leading a sales team. And I think it's my best book because I have eight more years experience working in the field where I was able yeah. to kind of capture that. And what I went through here is I, we've already kind of talked about, you have these two levers we have to spend, we meaning sales leaders, we have to spend the majority of our time either doing one of our two most important jobs, holding our people accountable for doing their job and doing accountability in a way that's productive. It's not counterproductive. It's not demotivating. It's not demoralizing. Mm -hmm. It's not micromanaging. It's good accountability. And mm -hmm. most salespeople want to keep score. The number one trait of top salespeople is competitive, right? So it's, it's sticking someone's nose in the results and in the pipeline and, and only when necessary in activity, doing really good accountability and then doing coaching. And coaching is a really big, broad word, but we would all agree helping someone get better at doing their job is a big responsibility of the leader of the manager. Yeah. So if, if you're asking me for a new manager, what do you need to do to win? You learn how to do accountability. You learn how to do coaching. You, and you're very aware of the fact that you probably have the tendency to do rather than coach and to do rather than lead to do rather than hold accountable. The, the term I use for that is you tend to play the hero on your team yeah, and you're doing everybody's jobs instead of trying to make them better or hold them accountable. And that is not a sustainable or scalable way. You're not multiplying yourself into your people that gets old really fast. That leads to burnout, exhaustion, bad culture, creating codependent reps, stunting career development. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But it's understanding 
you're supposed to hold them accountable. You're supposed to make them better. And we'll talk about talent management in a minute, making sure you've got the right people. You right. keep your good ones and you coach up or coach out the bad ones. But if you do the things we just talked about in the last couple of minutes, you win big in management. And that's where I'd point someone to. It's not some fancy tool. It's not some new process. It's not some trending article on LinkedIn. Like get, it's, it's the basics, accountability, coaching, right people in the job and don't do your people's jobs for them. Yeah. Imagine we were talking about the chiefs and football before we started recording we today. You know? Imagine the, the head coach like running out on the field and just say, Hey, let me throw this one, Patrick. Right. Let me, th- let me take this play. It's absurd, but yet we do it in sales all the time uh, okay. as, as sales managers thinking that that's, that's what, that's what we need to do to save the deal. Uh, so I, I call it, you know, Hey, I want to coach to the season or the, to the career of my seller, not to the next play. I want to tell me, tell me more about that coach to the season. Explain that. I like where you're going. Yeah. I, I think we get wrapped up in, Hey, that call went poorly. And so, uh, you know, don't do that anymore. Right. Uh, versus, Hey, that call went poorly. What do you think you could have done differently? What would have happened if we did it this way? Or we said this right in the coaching afterwards, I'm coaching to the athlete or the seller to their career, right? I'm making an investment in their skill set over time versus just like, oh, let's, you know, think of right now. I think we get very focused, you know, on month, quarters, even years. Uh, and so looking at big pictures with our athletes or our sellers and uh, making them the best they can be overall, you know, over time. What do you think about that? I think that's so powerful. I'd encourage your, your listeners to go back and re-listen to you there because that, I mean, that's the key. And I'm going to give you a, a different analogy, but the same point, because everyone is so short-sighted today. And the question I ask when I'm leading a workshop of a bunch of sales managers is, where did all the mentors go? Mm. Like my success as a salesperson, I can tell you why I was successful. Yeah, I got some natural DNA and I was raised in a house of someone that was good in sales, but put that aside. In my career, I took off when I got mentored. CEOs, yeah. execs, sales managers, older salespeople took me in their car, took me on sales calls, got in my car, yelled at me, helped me pack, helped me debrief after meetings, like real coaching. And today everyone's got their head down on a screen thinking that's coaching. So I ask where the mentors go. And the analogy I'm going to use to your thing about coaching for the career versus coaching for today. When they, when I, I talked earlier about managers who tend to play the hero, part of the reason they do that is because it's more expedient. Yeah. You got the job, you're the manager, you know what to do. So it's easier for you to go catch the fish than to turn somebody into a proficient fisherman or fisherwoman, right? They, they are so quick to jump in, to do the deal, to take over the meeting, to craft the proposal, to be instructive in their coaching instead of probing like you were articulating. They're mm-hmm. not asking, they're telling. Well, if you're catching everybody a fish, what good is that? Because if they can never fish on their own, then you're needed everywhere all the time. And that's not tenable. That's not sustainable. So that breaks down pretty quick. Yeah. And that leads to the burnout that we see in the sales management role. And, and they're trying to be the hero, not to mention constantly keeping their team hyped and pumped up to do a job we're kind of already paying them to do, you know, and, and uh, taking that responsibility on their shoulders as well. You mentioned um, a couple of minutes ago, you mentioned, you know, finding the right people for your team. What's your approach to that? Or what, what are some tips you can give our audience? I, I, I'm going to start in a really basic way, which may surprise people but it goes back to job descriptions. Hmm. I can't believe some of the job descriptions and they're not always all in writing, but you hear them, you hear them verbally where I sometimes challenge managers. Would you go back and look at all the things you're asking your salespeople to do from 
create, to prospect, to hunt, to draft proposals, to manage accounts, to chasing invoices, to onboarding, to customer success. I mean, to sitting on the holiday party committee and everything else. I'm like, are you crazy? Like that, that's not one job description. I mean, that's multiple jobs. And then who's going to fill that? Like what, who is the unicorn you're going to find that's good at every aspect of selling? So the first thing I think is really important because there are so many different types of sales roles and different types of people is really getting granular in a job description about what are the requirements for what you need in that job. And then let's come up with not just the description, but who's the person who's naturally gifted? What DNA does it take Uh to succeed in in that way where you're finding the right fit for the job? So that's, that's part one is job description and, and creating a natural fit. Part two is we have got to up our interviewing game. And I can't believe in 2023 with all the assessments and all the AI and all the things that we have today, how crappy most companies are when it comes to screening and interviewing salespeople. And I attribute a lot of that to pathetic interviewing techniques by hiring managers who don't create a sales situation for the candidate, who don't make the candidate treat it like it's a sales call, who ask regular routine, boring, um, canned questions and don't force someone to think on their feet or deal with objections or attempt to close you or flesh out your objections. Like there's so many things we could do. And one of the chapters on finding the right people, I actually list my seven favorite interview questions and examples of how I use them because we need to know not just that someone is likable and likable is important, but likable is not enough. Yeah. And if, if, unless you're hiring rookies and you have some incredible development program, which most companies I work with are not hiring rookies or trying to hire someone with experience, it behooves us to find out if that person had success in the past and we need details. We need stories. We want to hear how they, how they secured opportunities and, and work their way in and advance those deals and negotiate it and, you know, in complex deals where they met stakeholders and built consensus and own their process and, you know, move something to close. And I, you got to ask the kinds of questions to get people to talk to unearth whether they know how to do what you need them to do. And I, I'll kind of yield there, but between job descriptions and better interviewing, you can go a long way to getting the right people on your team. When you're talking about these questions, kind of these softball questions, are you talking about questions, Mike? Like, uh, hey, you know what? Sometimes our team has to really come together and just work hard. You know, do you like to work hard, Mike? Yeah. Could you tell me about your weaknesses? You know, what what aren't you good at? Like those questions, like the one you just asked me, that's not helping you. No. My first interview question, I, I look at someone, I say, What's your deal and why are you here? I love the what's your deal. What do you typically hear? You kind of, you probably hear all I kinds of different answers. Unfortunately, usually get uh, the, the lame responses. I get a re- recitation of their resume and like a life history. Hmm. When I really am dying for someone to lean forward and go, thanks for asking me. I'm here because I'm looking to make a huge dent in your business. And based on what I saw in the job description, I think I'm a perfect fit. And I look forward to unpacking that with you. Yeah. You know, I would fall out of my chair. Right. Right. And on the back end of the interview, let's keep going down this path for a second. Because people know if I'm involved in the interview, they know that I'm not the hiring manager. I'm the third party. I'm advising some client. I want that salesperson to lean in at the end and go, Mike, are you going to recommend me to the client? Am I your first choice for the hiring manager? And if not, how come? They should close you. Is there anything you're concerned about in my candidacy? Yeah. Like I wanted them to flesh out Am I going to champion them? And do I have some concerns I need them to expand on? And the pros, they do it. Yeah. They do it. It's And it's a joy. And then 
the ones that don't, I mean, you, it's already at that point. I've already decided that it's probably not the right person, but at the end, they prove to me that they really don't know what they're doing or not the right person for that client. Cause my, most of my clients are not hiring rookies and they don't have the, the setup to do that type of base level training. So, right. Yeah. I was coaching a client today and we were talking about this exact thing, interviewing salespeople. And uh, I said, you, you need to look at three different areas. You need to look at their knowledge and their skills and then their attributes. The knowledge is industry knowledge. They may need to have, like if you're in a certain industry that you got to know certain things. Right. I said, but know that you can teach them that probably. And the skills know that you can maybe train them in those things, unless you need somebody highly skilled, you know, because they're enterprise level or something like that. But the attributes of people, you will rarely change or add those in anyone because by the time we get them, these people are who they are, right? They're, they're either driven or they're not. They're either creative or they're not. They're either innovative or they're not. It, it's kind of who they are. And so what we did is we worked together to engineer questions that would either prove or disprove that people really? we were interviewing, you know, had those attributes we were looking for. Uh, but yeah, oh, it's, that, it's so key. Brilliant. I No, because I, you can't win. Your life as a manager, you, this is what I see every day. I see sales leaders who live in perpetual frustration that their people will not do the job required of them. And usually that revolves around some type of hunting, proactive, creating opportunities, turning over rocks. I'll use a dirty word, prospecting, some mm. type of hunting where they have people on their staff that I use this phrase, they're wired like zookeepers. They're wonderful relational peacekeepers. They don't lose clients. They're good at detail. They're good at product. They're good at retention. Those are all wonderful things, but they're so conflict diverse and they're so hesitant and they're so careful to protect the relationship. Even in an existing account, they don't want to ruffle feathers. Yeah. They don't, yeah. they don't Pac-Man their way in and meet new contacts and disrupt the status quo and, and penetrate and cross sell. They just try to protect. That's a terrible characteristics for a, for a salesperson, right? We, we need, we need to uncover those things. And I, I mean, real life, I have a 25 year old daughter who is super talented. I mean, a rock star and brilliant and couldn't, couldn't say more great things about her. She's two years into her career after getting a master's degree in a professional field. And I'll leave it at that. Over the last six months, we've had a lot of conversations. She just changed jobs because, you know, you said something, if they don't bring it, we're not going to put it in them. My daughter's only 25, but the truth is she's been an adult for three years or more. Mm -hmm. She's formed and she knows what she's good at and what she's not good at. Yeah. And she happened to go into a career when she actually got into the job that what was required of her to do every day was not what she thought it would be. And yeah. it was a lot of skills that she is not naturally gifted at. And she has lived in perpetual frustration for two years. And as a dad, I had to look at her and say, sweetie, you have my blessing to get out of that. You ain't good at it. And you're probably not going to get good at it. It's not what you thought you'd be doing just because you got a degree in it. It doesn't mean that we made the right decision then in total grace, no guilt, go do something that you're passionate about. And that's a natural fit. You'll be a lot happier and a lot more successful. And that same story, it's easy to say as a parent, right? With a kid, but sure. Some of us need to look at our own staff and go, I have people here whose DNA does not fit the requirements of this job. And whether I coach them or coerce them or compensate them, and I like alliteration, so I had the C's rolling there. Yeah. It doesn't matter. They're not going to do that part of the job because it's not in them. And we need to be much more specific about what's required in the role and get the right people with the right gifting into those jobs. 
Not to promote uh, what Sales Collective does, but I'd be remiss. I'd probably be in trouble with my CEO and founder if I didn't mention it. You've mentioned DNA twice. And one of the tools that we use is a sales DNA, which is a sales-specific audit that we give people that measures exactly what you're talking about. Do they have even the will to sell? Never mind the competencies. We talk about that too in the assessment. But do they have the will? I mean, do they want to? Do they have that natural inclination? And it's incredibly yeah, I, valuable. I'm glad I was able to tee up that. Thank you. Shameless <laughs> self-promotion. And that and we didn't even plan that. And, and it's important. And you should, we, they should use every tool available to get the right people in the right roles. Because it's a lot easier to manage when you have a smart comp plan and you have the right people. Yeah. It's very hard to manage the wrong people under the wrong comp plan. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of sentences ago, you mentioned um, basically an underperforming scenario. Somebody is, needs to be hunting. They're not hunting. Uh, they need to be prospect. They're not, you know, they're not doing whatever X. It's usually something they're not good at because nobody likes doing things they're not good at um, and they don't know how to do it, but still they're not doing it. So let's assume we've coached somebody to get good at something, shown them, hey, here's what good looks like. You make sure you do these three things, avoid these three things, that kind of stuff. But then they're still not doing. How do you how do you handle underperformance? What's your approach to that? I wrote an entire chapter that's probably the most instructive and granular chapter in the whole book on that topic. And I basically say it's it's malpractice to ignore underperformance. And yet so many managers do not want to have the conversation. And they they and what I argue is if you do good accountability on a monthly basis, you're showing someone their results and you're reviewing their pipeline. And if it's not getting better, you know, the question I ask is, well, what's the definition of insanity and how long are you going to have the same conversation and have the same outcome? Yeah. You as the leader have a responsibility to confront this underperformance and change the dialogue. And I created this thing. I call it informal remediation or the coach up plan. And I argue this is before a PIP. This is not legal. This is not HR. This is not cover your ass. Cause most of us would agree that in most companies, if you get to the formal performance improvement plan, that's really just a formality at that point legally because you're going to move somebody out. Yeah. And what I'm saying is no. If you got someone on your team and they're potentially a keeper, like they're not poison in the culture, you know, they're not a cancer in the organization, they look like they care, might even be someone we hired but haven't given enough love or attention, or maybe someone we inherited that just was never coached up appropriately. My argument is you as the manager, without even HR, without legal, without PIP, you create this coach up plan and you change the dialogue and you sit down with, and I use the name Johnny. So forgive me if your name's John in the book, Johnny, the underperformer. And after a few months of rough one-on-ones where Johnny's behind the numbers and he's trailing the team and the pipeline's not healthy, assuming Johnny's potentially a keeper, you sit him down and say, Johnny, I want to help you. You're not on the right track right now, right? We both hoped you would turn this around and I believe you want to do better. I think you want to do better but the, the status quo is not good and we got to get on a different trajectory. So I want to help you starting right now. And here's what we're going to do. And I show them for a couple months or whatever the right finite period of time is, you're going to do two things. You're going to get a commitment from Johnny for more and mm -hmm. you're going to offer Johnny more, more coaching and more accountability. And my suggestion to any sales leader that's got someone on their team who's struggling, if you're not sure whether to begin coaching up Johnny, I would say do it because the end result is always good. If you take two or three months and you double down your coaching and you double up your accountability and you ask the struggling person for double commitment, more activity, certain pipeline, you know, and yeah. certain results and say, I'm going to help you get here, but I need you involved. And you, and you 
pour yourself into this person for a few months at, at double or triple the normal rate. When that finite period of time is over, you have a very clear answer. Either A, it worked, at least temporarily with extra pressure, coaching, and accountability. Johnny is now succeeding, at least at a level that's acceptable. You saved him. Everybody yeah. wins. Or B, with extra coaching, accountability, commitment, it didn't work, and Johnny's still failing, and now you go, not savable. I did everything I could. And then you do whatever you got to do legally. And possibly even my coach up plan is something where you involved HR because that, that time period could have been part of what you were documenting. But my own data, anecdotal, not empirical, but anecdotal observation, somewhere between 25% and 35% of the time, that conversation actually works. And with the pressure, attention, coaching, and getting a commitment, Johnny raises his game. Mm -hmm. And that's a big win. Two thirds of the time, it doesn't work. And yeah. all you've done is you've, you've got to a clear decision point where, you know, you need to set this person free to go succeed or fail somewhere else, but you can't help them. Yeah. And, and the only other piece I'll add to this little strong encouragement, because what, what, let me, let me tell you what happened, Sean, uh, real life. I'm in an engagement, not just a workshop, but I'm in with a client and I'm talking to a sales manager and we're reviewing Johnny's results. And I'm like, dude. When are you going to deal with this? You're turning your head the other way. You're committing malpractice. Why have you not had the conversation with Johnny that this can't go on this way? And I typically get this lame, mealy mouth answer from the manager. like, Mike, you don't understand. Like, I'm dying as it is. I'm working all I can. If I have that conversation with Johnny, he's probably going to bail on me. And if he leaves, th this guy who's failing and been uh -huh. failing for a long time, if he leaves, I'm screwed. I, I don't have a bench of recruits ready to go. I'm going to have to fill the gap and cover the territory. When we do find someone, I'm going to interview like crazy. And then I got to onboard him and train him. My life's going to suck if I tell Johnny he's got to raise his game. And I mean, I haven't ever actually grabbed somebody physically, but I want to grab them <laughs> and go, are you freaking nuts? Have you just abdicated? Have you already quit? And what are you communicating to the rest of your team that you leave this person who's failing in the job unaddressed? Like that it's okay. Like, what are you doing to your culture? And yeah. are you not committing management malpractice, hoping this is going to fix itself? And right. I'm like, at least address it. And if you do what I'm advocating within a couple of months, you've gotten to the place where there's some resolution and maybe a third of the time you did it. You've actually, and I've had, I've had executives actually tell this story when I'm in the middle of leading a session. This happened a couple of years ago. The senior vice president stood up right when I was at this point in a workshop. He said, Mike, sit down. And he looked out at the room and I told this story in the book. And he said, the only person that knows what I'm about to tell you is the CEO who's sitting right over there. But 23 years ago, I was Johnny. This mm -hmm. is now the senior VP of a billion dollar organization. Okay. He says, 23 years ago, I was freaking Johnny and I was cutting corners and I was new and I was slacking off. And my boss sat me down. He goes, you know, I expected more from you. In fact, I think you can do a lot better. And I don't think you learned our product well enough. And I don't, I don't think you're conducting the kind of sales calls. I'm going to help you, but I need more from you. You mm -hmm. go study the product and you go do this and you practice. And we're going to meet every week. If you want to work here, I need you to pick up your game. I think you have it, but I'm not sure. And the guy looked out at the room. There were like 60 managers in the room. He goes, that guy saved my career. And I wouldn't be in this job where I am today, leading this organization. If it wasn't for that guy who had the guts to tell me the truth in love and that he expected more from me and that he was going to invest in me. And I can't, I mean, I can't say any better than that client said it. That's the opportunity before the manager to change a trajectory of someone's life and career. But you can't do it if you turn your head and ignore it.
So yeah, and I love the way they use the term malpractice. I've never heard that before, but it really it really is an apt term because at some point, if the poor performance continues, you have to ask yourself: is the is the seller the problem or is the manager the problem? Because the manager's not dealing with it, right? the problem becomes you when I coach people and they say, Oh, I keep coaching them, Sean, and they just won't change. And I've talked to them like five times. I said, go look in the mirror and there's your problem. You're the problem now. There's no consequences. And, and asking them when they say, well, I told them they have to do this or they have to do that, or they got to make this many dials, this many meetings or whatever. I said, what happens if they don't? And you know what the answer is, right, Mike? Nothing. Nothing. Uh, Wow. You mentioned culture. Um, I'm having so much fun talking to you, man. Um, you mentioned culture. Talk to me about that. That's a great buzzword. You know, you mentioned LinkedIn. I think, I think we might share the same uh, <laughs> uh, love hate for whole, LinkedIn. Whole oh, man. I'm gonna, we'll, about, yeah. we'll do that off the air for the okay. sake of my career, at least. Um, <laughs> anyway, you don't need it, but I do. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but you know, that's a buzzword. You can read all these articles on LinkedIn. They never tell culture. you how. Never tell you how to build culture. They always say you need a good culture. Okay, thanks. How do I build it, Mike? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say first something macro about culture. Then we could talk about how to create one. Everybody wants two things, and I'm telling you, they're not mutually exclusive. You can have them both. We all want this happy pro sale, celebratory community, loving brotherhood, winning locker room sales culture. And we all want big results and we want to win and we want to be laser focused on goals and results. And I'm here to tell you that when you marry those two things together, you have the perfect sales culture. It's not Mm -hmm. one or the other. And companies tend to air one way or the other. And they tell me, I can't, I don't want to do accountability because I want to have this caring culture. I'm like, I think it's actually uncaring not to do accountability. Like you, there's nothing mutually exclusive about having a kick-ass results focused, high performance culture and being really caring and pro sales and having a fun, loving, celebrating environment. Right. You can do both of those things. Well, and winning teams typically have both of those. What, what I would tell you is I think, and I'm really practical as I say this, this isn't like a big ethereal concept. It's practical. The battle for sales culture is won by how the frontline sales leader spends his or her time. I believe the three highest payoff activities are accountability meetings, which are done one-on-one, coaching, which is mostly done one-on-one, and sales team meetings. And what I'll tell you is that regardless of the chaos in the larger organization and how anti-sales your engineering wired CEO might be, or how arrogant your production or manufacturing people might be, Mm -hmm. or your brilliant tech founder that writes algorithms in his sleep, and I've got clients in all of those areas that are somewhat anti-sales when the sales leader shields the people from the nonsense and creates a loving pro sales healthy culture under them because they do great accountability and they encourage hearts and they also are willing to coach and work alongside and they lead team meetings that aren't bitch sessions and aren't just admin and aren't faux accountability because they're too lazy to do one-on-one accountability, but sales team meetings that really do energize and equip the people. When the frontline leader does that, good accountability, good coaching, good team meetings, and obviously gets the right people into the environment that have the type of characteristics that create that kind of culture, you can win really big. Even in an environment where the macro world isn't as pro sales or healthy sales culture as you'd want it to be, 
a good VP of sales or sales manager can shield and create a little biosphere for their team to operate in a healthy pro sales and kick-ass way and have a ton of fun doing it. Yeah, I love that. Uh, when I'm working with clients, we talk about, okay, you've got your company culture, right? That's the overarching culture. That's the one that HR did with the senior leadership right. at Summer Retreat, right? But your your team, frontline sales manager, it has its own little unique culture, right? So you need your own vision. You need your own mission. You need your own values. And that gives you your identity. It's almost like a sports team. Like imagine having a sports team with no colors, no uniform, no mascot, oh. no, right? That's what they are. They're just like relying on the NFL to be their identity. When in reality, they're, they need to have their own identity so they can feel like they're part of something great for your exact reasons, the accountability. And, and so they can feel like they're part of something and they're cared for. But at the same time, it's part of something excellent. And why doesn't everybody want to be part of something excellent? Well, they do. That's really it's just indexing on your point that you made, like you can have both. And really that's what true salespeople want. They want the excellence and the accountability because that means you can take pride in what you've done. I, I love how you framed all of that. And it just leads me to this really overarching point. I start every single workshop with sales leaders with the same slide. It's a picture of a lock and a key. And I start out the day by saying, listen to me, you're the key. Mm -hmm. It's you. It's not HR. It's not the president. You are the key to creating a healthy, high-performance sales culture and driving long-term sales success. You are the most important person in this equation. So, so if you do good accountability and you get the right people and you coach and you lead good team meetings and you don't get buried in all the corporate crap, you will actually have fun doing your job. You will drive more results and you'll have people whose careers, I mean, the most fun thing in sales leadership, and this was a big lesson for me because I, I had a lot of success as a salesperson. Mm -hmm. I had a flip into understanding my joy and satisfaction would come by winning through my people. That's where the massive transition took place is understanding that it's not what you do on your own. It's what you do through your people. And that's how you win big. And that's how we build a healthy culture. And the joy and satisfaction from being a sales leader is when you see your people thriving. And that only works when you carve out the time to do those high payoff activities that actually move the needle and help them thrive. And for the 19th time, it's holding them accountable and it's coaching them and making them better and creating the type of environment when you gather as a team that they're getting energized and better equipped to sell. And if we would just do those few things as a leader, you would not believe what would happen to sales results. You, you uh, have said a lot about accountability. I want to ask you something. I've found that a lot of sales managers, they want to quote unquote, hold their people accountable. Senior leadership is telling them you need to hold your people accountable for right. results. Yet they don't have a system of accountability where it's clear what the expectations are of the sellers, meaning what metrics, what's our goal targets, what metrics are we measuring? How often are we measuring them? What levers are we trying to pull uh, what have you seen? What's been your experience in, in uh, sales managers asking for accountability, but not having the structure for people to offer and to engage and opt in with their accountability? It's a really great question because it's, it's very hard to do accountability well when there isn't goal clarity or data to support tracking against the goal. Now, I'm a man of, uh, I'm a simplified guy. So I don't like when there's 19 metrics and no one, you know, if you have 10 priorities, you have no priorities, but there's a handful of big goals that every salesperson should know. And whether it's units or dollars or gross margin, and whether it's account penetration or cross-sell wins, or it's market share, um, or it's number of new accounts acquired, there's a couple big 
goals. And I mean, goals should be like results. A goal is not 10 phone calls or X number of meetings. That's, that's an activity metric. That's not a goal. A goal Mm -hmm. is about a real result and sales is about results period. And if you can get, get that simplified and get the goals articulated, it's not hard as the manager to sit down once a month and go, let's see where you're at against your goal. What are your actual results against the goal? And where do you rank on the team in terms of percent a goal achieved? That's a healthy way of doing it. And you ask me what I see work. It's my framework that I stole from my mentor, Donnie, that I made famous in sales manager simplified in chapter 20. And it, it shows up again in this book in chapter three. And there's a free guide on my website that's called the fastest way to increase accountability, reduce complacency and create a high performance sales culture. I, I mean, I talk about this in almost every podcast episode uh, on my own show and wherever I go. If you do good accountability, I believe you can do it in 10 minutes a month per person and you can review results, pipeline and activity in that order. And the order is magical. And we, we don't have time to dive into that today, but that keeps you from being a micromanager and it keeps everyone focused yep. on what really matters results and results come from the pipeline and pipeline is usually a function of activity and skill, but most managers get that upside down and they get nuts about activity. Mm-hmm. I've got clients. I mean, I, I've had conversations. I had a conversation with the CEO of a big billion dollar privately held company last year where I had to tell him from observing his sales team, the salespeople face greater dire consequences when they don't complete their call reports than when they miss their number. And they had this faux accountability thing going on where people were checking boxes. I updated the CRM. I did my pre and post call reports. Can't yell at me, but they were at 50% of their sales goal. (laughs) And I sat them down and go, your people unintentionally have created a culture where failing is acceptable, but not doing paperwork is, you know, something that gets you in trouble. I said, we're sending a really dangerous message here. And I helped them flip it on its head, its results, then pipe, and then activity. And that I stole that from my mentor, Donnie, and it's foolproof. It's how you do great accountability without micromanaging and without being a jerk. Yeah. It's a big conversation. I'm assuming the way you get around the micromanagement, because I think that is the greatest fear of your of your millennial sales manager is, oh, I just don't want to be a micromanager. So they err on the other side. That being said, I'm assuming... With your pipeline uh, results, uh, no, wait, results, results pipe pipeline activity, right? activity is that if I come to you and I got the results, conversation's pretty much over, right? Just going to check the pipeline because I do Janet Jackson. You know, you may have blown your number away. You beat your quarter for the year. And I'm like, hey, that's great. What have you done lately? I mean, lately, yeah. Okay. What have you done for me lately? And can what my favorite accountability question around the pipeline is, what did you create in the past 30 days? There you go. What's new? What deals are we working or what ops did you put in the pipe? What's new? What did you create? My two favorite sales words are proactive and create. What's in the pipeline today that wasn't here 30 days ago, or some clients do this weekly, that wasn't here seven days ago, because Mm -hmm. I'm not letting you sit back on your laurels. I don't care if you're blowing away your quota. I'm still going to look at your pipeline because that's tomorrow's business. Yeah. But if I look at the pipe and it's full and it's healthy and we're creating, we're advancing, I'm never going to ask you what you're doing. I don't care. Yeah. But- and this is the big, but the moment your pipeline is weak and you and I, as a salesperson, look at it and we're like, Hey, Johnny, um, not only were your results bad, but I'm looking at your pipeline and you and I both would agree. Even if you closed hundred percent of these deals and we usually close about a third, you're not making your number this month or for the quarter, are you? Now I got to go to the next phase of this meeting and that's the least pleasant phase, but Johnny, I'm not cool with you failing. 
And since your results aren't there and your pipeline's weak, why don't you grab the calendar and open the CRM and show me your target account list and your business plan? What the heck did you do last month? Yeah. Where the wires are no pipeline. What were you doing instead? And then it gets real serious. Yeah. But you don't have to go there unless they've earned that level of digging. Yeah. And you have the right to, right? It's not micromanagement. Even at that point, it's just management. Oh no, it's smart management. The <laughs> yeah, only reason you're exactly. even going there is because they they've earned it. And that, yeah. I, I, that's how I like to say it. I'm not good with you failing. And since the results aren't there and your pipe is weak, I don't really have a choice. We need to dive into your activity. And I'm not even just going to look back. I'm going to look at the future. What do you got planned for this this week and next week and the yeah. week after? Because I, I need to know you're creating, advancing, and closing sales. And I don't see any of that happening right now. And that is not an asshole conversation. That is like a good, healthy, I'm for you. Let's get with, I'm not against you. I'm for you. Let me help get you refocused on the things that are going to help you win. Yeah. That's what good leaders do. Yeah. Having a standard, right? A standard of what it takes to stay on this team and to be on this team. Uh, in chapter 11, you talk about fancy toys and tricks. What do you think the biggest distraction is for sales managers today? Everything. Sales managers are distracted by every shiny new tool and hack and trick. And they're looking for a shortcut or an easy button or secret sauce or magic bullet. Uh, can I throw another like cliched phrase in there? Um, and they're on LinkedIn looking for the quick fix. And I, I won't even get started on the cesspool that LinkedIn has become because there's no barrier to entry. But my message to every sales leader and every sales manager is this. I have never once seen a sales team struggle or fail because they were missing some new tool or mm. process or trick. They fail because they haven't done the fundamentals. On, on the management side, we don't have the right people. We don't have the right comp. We don't do accountability. We don't do coaching. And on the sales side, it's my new sales simplified framework. They don't have a good target list. They don't tell a good story. They don't get meetings. They, don't, they run crappy meetings. They don't do good discovery or run consultative sales calls. And the salespeople don't own their calendar and their pipeline. They're running around like glorified customer service or customer success people, but they're not hunting. They're not filling. They're not creating. So on, on the management side, it's the basics. And the same on the sales side, there's not the answer to your problem is not a new weapon or a new tool. Now, are there great tools? Yes. But the billions of dollars being funneled into the sales tool industry from venture capital backers is everyone out there trying to create this FOMO that if you don't have this new plugin or this new thing, you're screwed. And I'm like, there may be a great new tool, but that's not why you're struggling. And that's not going to fix all your problems. So it's just, it's my caution and I did that in chapter 11, which is the conclusion of the book to say, if you're going to win, go back to chapter three, hold people accountable. Chapter four, help them get better at doing their jobs. Chapter five, don't get in the trap of doing their job for them. Chapter six, get the right people. Chapter seven, spend more time with your best people. Chapter eight, don't ignore underperformers. And chapter nine, communicate with their heart and show them that you're for them. You do those things, you're going to win. And that's why, honestly, the book is thin. I mean, when, it, when I was done, I'm like, this is barely 180 pages because that's all you need to do. If you do these few things well, you win big in sales management. So that's my message. Great stuff. I think that's a great way to end our podcast. Get the book, guys. Do yourself a favor. Come on. Like you said, it's not it's not war and peace here, right? This is just <laughs> down and dirty stuff. Maybe three nights. Maybe three nights. Maybe. 
Yeah. Or you get yeah. excited. You might just read it all in a day, right? I get, I start getting excited when I read this stuff that's tactical. I can apply it immediately. So make sure if you're watching this, go get this book. Mike, where can people find you? Uh, they can find me at mikeweinberg.com, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, mikeweinberg.com. And on socials, it's uh, Mike underscore Weinberg. All right. Well, thank you for spending some time with us today, Mike. And thank you for listening to The Frontline. We invite you to jump into the conversation with us on LinkedIn and share your thoughts and experiences as a sales leader. And don't forget to tune in to our next episode where we'll continue exploring the front lines of sales leadership. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Sean Buxton, and we'll see you on The Frontline. Are you ready to take your sales team to the next level? Our team of world-class coaches can help, whether it be sales process, hiring rockstar sellers, or simply building your sales and sales leadership skills. The Sales Collective has you covered. Visit us today at thesalescollective.com.